So, I mean, think about when you've had that chance and you're like, whoa, I'm not qualified to do this, but man, this is awesome. I'm learning and I feel important (laughs) and, you know, and that's something, that's a lesson that, you know, I try to call out in my book. Like, don't be afraid of a little bit of crazy because there can be a lot more upside than you think and energy is a powerful thing. This is the Rebel HR Podcast, the podcast where we talk to human resources innovators about innovation in the world of HR. If you're a people leader or you're looking for a new way to think about how to help others be successful, this is the podcast for you. Rebel on, HR Rebels. Rebel HR listeners, welcome to our show. Super excited for this week's guest. We have Steve Cadigan, who is an expert in the future of work. Steve is considered a corporate culture guru, bringing winning insights from over 30 years of HR experience with a few companies you may have heard of, Google, Salesforce, McKinsey, the BBC. Uh, He is renowned for leading LinkedIn's first talent push growing them from 400 to 4,000 employees. And he has done many other wonderful things that we don't have time to cover in this intro. Most exciting update here is he's also releasing a book called Workquake, Embracing the Aftershocks of COVID-19 to Create a Better Model of Working. Welcome to the show, Steve. Well, thanks for having me, Cal. Great to be here. Well, I'm, I'm super excited for this conversation. As I was preparing for this discussion, I just kept thinking, well, this guy's perfect to talk to our listeners because this book exemplifies exactly what we were trying to do with this podcast about a year ago. And so why don't we start off, what inspired you to write WorkQuake? Well, Kyle, I've been in the talent world for um, probably 30, 35 years. And I think over the course of the last couple of decades, I started to see some trends and some patterns that caused me to be frustrated. And I wasn't really sure what was gnawing at me until I had a day where I, I was at Electronic Arts. And I talk about this in the introduction of the book. I was at Electronic Arts. And my job, because of it was 2008, the second mortgage crisis had hit. And a lot of companies were having to change their strategies. I'd been hired by EA to do acquisition integration, as well as some day-to-day HR work as well. But the economic crisis had shrunk my job to about 20% of what I was hoping it would be. So it wasn't interesting Mm. to me. And my boss knew it and I knew it. So I became open to some overtures that some companies were making to say, hey, would you consider a different job? Because I wasn't super happy and excited about the way my job had evolved. And so that's when LinkedIn approached me. I interviewed there and I accepted the job. But before I accepted the job, my boss found out I was interviewing. And she found out because I had misplayed my hand by trying to impress LinkedIn and sent them all invitations. I don't know if you remember this, but back in 2008, whenever you connected with someone, the next day, your whole network got a broadcast. Hey, Kyle's now connected to... And so what my boss saw was Steve's now connected to the head of engineering, the head of sales, the head of marketing, the the chairman, (laughs) the CEO, the whole leadership team. And so you didn't have to be a knucklehead to realize Steve's probably interviewing. So I get a phone call from her. She's like, I know you're interviewing at LinkedIn. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I was just mortified, man. If I don't get this job, I am so screwed. Man. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like this is not, re- it's not a recoverable moment. Well, I wound up getting the job, but I wound up sort of confronting this awkward feeling of like, why am I feeling bad? 
that I'm leaving. And I'd only been there a little over a year. And I was, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to be a new head of HR, the first head of HR at LinkedIn. And, you know, Electronic Arts couldn't promise that to me. They're not a pre-IPO company. They're not in a high growth ramp. They're not in a new market space. And I was sort of feeling guilty. I'm like, why am I feeling guilty? This should be like a celebration. And my boss took a big hit because I was leaving before the you know expected term of my employment. And that really, for me, sort of stuck in my, my mind for a period of time and said, you know what? That we've got an outdated model of work that isn't fitting today's reality where people are leaving a little more frequently than they used to. And that when someone leaves for something better, that shouldn't be a devastation, a devastating moment. That should be something that maybe should be appreciated. And so it just, I, that sort of stuck with me and then probably uh, was further advanced in my mind because I've seen in the last five years, probably the worst marketing campaign in history is how we talk about the future of work. The robots mm-hmm. are coming, 50% of the jobs <laughs> in five years don't even exist today. Good luck building the right skill set for the future because the companies don't know what skills they need and you don't know what skills they need. So fear, fear, fear. And I wanted to you know, take that experience I had when I left Electronic Arts, take the experience of like trying to counter a model and present a model for the future work that's more inspirational and more motivational and, and gets people inspired in that it's not all about robots and AI. It's about being more human. And that's, you know, that was further, I guess, affirmed to me because I've been speaking around the world since I left LinkedIn probably the last eight years. And every time I get off the stage or stop teaching a class, the students or attendees would say, hey, where's your book? Where's your book? And I I'd point to my brain and go, it's right here. You know? <laughs> and so sure. I finally was pushed by some friends like, you got you to gotta write the book, you know, because people are really grooving on your ideas and, and they seem to be needed right now. So that was kind of a long-winded story of how I got to, to write the book. You know, kudos to you for putting it down and uh, documenting that journey. I mean, I just, I'm reflecting back on that time period when LinkedIn was coming up and, and then I'm just thinking back just in the time frame when I start, I don't even know when I got on LinkedIn, it was probably around that 2008 time frame back when you could like, like you knew everybody that was still right, right. <laughs> you know, like you weren't getting 75 different recruiters saying, Hey, I see you have this open position. You need any help? With <laughs> but I just remember what a powerful tool that became. But at that time I didn't realize how much it was going to shift the paradigm of my job, which at that time was primarily talent acquisition. Mm -hmm. And now if you're not leveraging that tool, you're, you might as well be putting classifieds in the paper and having a strong faith. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, so, I mean, just the change that happened in the time that you started at LinkedIn and to now, I mean, it's, how do you even wrap your head around that? And then as you look into the kind of the future, how do you, start to forecast what the future of work is going to look like. Yeah. And Kyle, great observation. I mean, 2008, I probably was, I don't, you probably were one of the first million members, right? That guy, did you get that note at some yeah. point? Like, Hey, you're one yeah. of the first million. <laughs> yeah, I was one of them. And I think as HR people, we're early adopters. So we sort of see the benefit of connecting with people and keeping in touch and being resourceful. And so I was relatively early in the curve and I couldn't, I did not forecast the degree or the magnitude that in LinkedIn was going to have in people's lives. And so, and honestly, the founders didn't either. They didn't. I mean, the founders were like, let's build something that we can all connect. And Reed Hoffman is just a, a master networker in and of himself. And he's like, let's just connect with people because it's going to make the world better. 
And then someone said, hey, we'll pay you to, you know, search your database of people to post jobs. And like, you'd pay us for that? And so that is less than 15 years ago-ish, you know? And it's really, wow. I mean, think about that. I was, I joined LinkedIn, we were six years old. I left, we're 10. Four years of my life felt like 20. And it was unlike any experience that I could explain. But, but being in a place it's hard enough to build a company, but to build a new industry and a new platform. And you think about, I've been recruiting 30 plus years, you too, uh, or maybe less because you look a lot younger than me. But I think, <laughs> what are the innovations that have really happened in the world of recruiting? I mean, besides the internet, not much, right? Like, what's right. Re- like I remember your biggest strategic advantage was stealing the phone book of your competition because now you had, so you can back into an org chart and you could try to go after them. Um, yep. And then it was, you know, job fairs and things like that. What turned me on the most about when I first went into LinkedIn to interview and I couldn't sleep for a week after I met the leadership team, I was so excited because what I felt, there's a lot of things I don't like about corporate work, but one of the things that really rubbed me was that a lot of bad leaders were tolerated in organizations. And I felt like this platform was going to expose bad leadership mm. in the same way that Glassdoor sort of made that almost to, it's almost more than exposed. It's almost like uh, made it super easy for people to, to express their unhappiness. But I thought that's a good outcome, right? And so I'll tell you a fun story and maybe some of the listeners can relate to this. So 2009, uh, one of the founders of LinkedIn, Alan Blue, and I get invited to the largest employer in America outside of the government, Walmart Corporation. Mm. And they want uh, Alan, founder, to speak. They have a luncheon speaker series every day at lunch. They have a speaker come in or a couple times a week. Alan was going to be the speaker. And then he and I were going to meet with the HR leadership team and then the engineering team because the engineering organization was struggling hiring people. And so I'll never forget going to, here's the largest employer in the country and the first thing the head of HR says to me is, why would I ever buy LinkedIn? Why would I ever buy something where my employees can go find another job? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was like, this is 2009. I'm thinking to myself, holy smokes, that's where you guys are at. That's where you guys feel like, hey, I need to hide opportunity for my people Otherwise, I'm going to lose them, which is basically you admitting you don't have the right culture and you don't have the right means. And as soon as someone sees another opportunity, they're going to want to run. So I said, you know, I was trying to be polite and professional. And here's potentially the biggest client you could ever hope for because of the volume of recruiting they do. Even even though most of the recruiting is for retail, they still had 60,000, 80,000 administrative staff that had computers and so forth. And I said, well, I said, how about if we look at this different way? What if I told you I could turn every one of your employees into a recruiter for you? Would that be interesting to you that they could network and they could apply their, their reach into their network to help fill your jobs? Would that be worth something to you? And they said, oh yeah. I said, well, so that's how I think about this. But by the way, the cat's out of the bag. They're going on LinkedIn at home. So, and, and that's part of what I was saying earlier, Kyle, like it's game on. Like, you have to be a desired destination because LinkedIn's going to serve to you more choice than ever before. And truly, there's two sides of that sword. There's the good side, which is I have more choice and visibility and opportunity. And I can see what I can do with my education, background, experiences more than I could ever see before. But more choice means harder decisions because the more choices you have sometimes, the harder it is to choose 
And I think that's contributing to why people are leaving jobs faster than ever before, uh, why people are not satisfied in their job, because we know not only can we make a great choice today, thanks to sites like LinkedIn, but we also know more about what we don't have, (laughs) the benefits we don't have, what our competitors have. And that can be profoundly unsettling. We haven't really absorbed how do we handle all this information and be motivated by it, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that's a really fascinating observation. I hadn't hadn't really thought about it like that, but it's almost like it's very similar to the some of the research done that people who are on social media all the time can tend to be miserable if they're constantly comparing themselves against all of these like wonderful pictures on Instagram and all of these smiling families on Facebook. And it's and a lot of times it's totally it's a facade, you know, it's right. <laughs> it's right. not not real life. It's like a snapshot and it's airbrushed. Right. Um, but kind of, a, yeah, I hadn't thought about LinkedIn in that context. Well, put, but I put it to, see that. Let me put it yeah. to you this way, Kyle. So in theory, would you agree that candidates and employers have more and better information to make more insightful career choices today than at any point in history? Both parties know more about each other. Okay. So shouldn't it stand to reason that people are making the best career choices and employers are making the best hires they've ever made? Because we got better information than ever before. It should stand to reason, right? Yes. Okay. So then why is disengagement increasing and job satisfaction declining? (laughs) Yeah. Right? So that that is part of what drove (laughs) me to write this book. Like, what's going on? Yeah, right. And so when you go, when I go to leaders around the world and I say, what's your biggest problem? And this is Latin America. Europe, Canada, Mexico, Asia. What's your biggest problem? I can't keep my best people. Well, why not? Mm-hmm. And that immediately needs to leads to the knee jerk. Oh, those millennials, short attention span, career sugar high, shopping for promotion, disloyal. <laughs> and so, which leads me to say, you mean your children that you raised with those values? That's the problem with the workforce. And I said, let's 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 unpack this a little bit. I said, uh, Mister, Mrs. Executive, I want you to go back forty years in time. If you could see all the opportunities that the workforce sees today. If you had as much choice, you know who's paying what and what their benefits are, their culture is, their leadership style, what the percentage of ownership of the company is and from the leaders and who's dumping stock. And if you could see all that stuff that the talent can see today, are you meaning to tell me you'd still be in the same company 40 years later? No, you wouldn't be. And so it's not a generational psychology. I believe the landscape of work is now different and people are making different choices because they see more, right? It's way more right. complex than just a knee-jerk Gen Z millennial, you know, short attention span, career sugar high, you know, reality. <laughs> and that's what I hear from them. That, I said, why do you think they're doing that? Oh, you know, this generation. I'm like, mm, I don't think so. I think there's something much bigger. And now the pandemic on top of that right. has created a situation where we have for the last year and a half, every one of us is looking at our lives differently. And we're seeing in April, the largest number of resignations in the history of American business since we've been tracking it. 40% of the workforce saying, I am not going back even for a 30%, you know, 50% pay increase if I have to go back to the office. And that's a testament to the how dramatic I think people are seeing the, the world of work differently. And I don't think it's a, a short-term thing. I think it's kind of a long-term deal. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating to think about even just the the change that's occurred in the last 18 months. And I think the pandemic was terrible for many reasons, but one of the silver linings was it also kind of gave a lot of people the opportunity to take a breath. 
during a time when you have more information at your disposal and any time in history. And oh, by the way, we still have a talent need at millions of employers around the world that are willing to pay for for people and willing to be flexible. So it's, you know, if you're an employer who's who just wants to go back, well, you know what? Okay, we'll get through the pandemic, then we'll just go back to how it was back in December of 19. That'll be perfect. <laughs> uh, can't wait for this to be over. It's too late, right? I mean, I, I just, that's my opinion is those that aren't adaptable will eventually just lose out on the best talent. That's right. And to your point, I'm an optimist just like you are. And I think this is the greatest leadership test in history. We have seen what country leaders are made of, what company leaders are made of, who's taken advantage of the pandemic to squeeze a profit, who's showing their employees that they're repurposing their factory to make respirators and not charging a dime for it. We're seeing all kinds of really cool things that organizations are doing and leaders are doing to step up. I mean, you know this when you work in HR, all of us do, that it, when times are tough is when you got an opportunity to really build followership. And yeah. I think, you know, I was asked last uh, April to give the graduation talk for University of San Francisco School of Business. And they said, hey, we just have one ask. You need to be inspirational. I'm like, inspirational? This is like the nuclear winner of job opportunities. Like, how am I going to be inspirational? <laughs> and so I, I thought about it and I was like, okay, here's what I'm going to have to say. So I, I told the grad, just listen, you're not graduating into the most plentiful opportunity landscape ever of jobs that are open now, but they will be. But you have something more valuable that generations before you haven't had. You can see what every organization out there is made of because they've had to reveal themselves. Uh, during the pandemic. And as you pointed out, and I violently agree with you, the companies and individuals that are agile and adaptable are the ones that are going to win. And it just so happens a lot of the tech companies are built on platforms of crazy where things are always changing. And I think they're used to it. And they've, they've had an easier time of pivoting. You know, I look at my LinkedIn days, you're bringing up that I was there for four crazy growth years. The average tenure of my population every year I was there was nine months. And we created wow. $26 billion company that Microsoft bought wow. a few years ago. And I really, it took me years, honestly, Kyle, to look back on that and go like, how did we do that? Like, it wasn't an easy product to sell. It was a very complex business model, more complicated than Facebook. Facebook's mainly advertising, right? Yes, they have to have free experiences that are going to engage users, but their main business is that. We're in recruiting, we're in marketing, we're in advertising, we're in a bunch of different verticals. Now they're in sort of sales leads as well. So that it wasn't easy, but I think the advantage we had is one that I think companies can take advantage of today, which is cultures of change are really, really powerful. Because what I learned through that experience of growing LinkedIn is, is something that I think a lot of startups and technology companies experience. And that is when you're growing and changing, everyone's job is changing and there's energy released. And if you ask anyone, when's the most you've ever been motivated in your career? doing the same thing for five years or doing something new. And people always say, oh yeah, doing something new. Okay, so then why is your company built so people stay in the same jobs for a long period of time? Like, why are you doing that? You're missing unlocking something. And so what we found at LinkedIn was because we're hiring all that we doubled every year I was there, the size of the population, all my senior leaders were recruiting, closing candidates, which was great. We had to do that. But that meant their lieutenants were stepping into their jobs and running the operational needs Whereas on paper, they're just not qualified to do that. So, I mean, think about when you've had that chance and you're like, whoa, I'm not qualified to do this, but man, this is awesome. I'm learning and right. I feel important. <laughs> and, 
you know, right. and that, and that's something, that's a lesson that, you know, I try to call out in my book. Like, don't be afraid of a little bit of crazy because there can be a lot more upside than you think. And energy is a powerful thing. Yeah. And now a word from our sponsors. When Molly, Patrick, and I started to figure out how to start our own podcast, we didn't know where to start. Thankfully, we found Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout makes it super easy for us to upload our episodes, track our listeners, and get listed on all the major podcast networks. Today's a great day to start your own podcast. I know that you're one of our listeners, so you've definitely got something to say. Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you want to share with the world, or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show, Podcasting is an easy, inexpensive, and fun way to expand your reach online. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories within minutes of finishing your recording. Podcasting isn't that hard when you have the right partner. and The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. And now, for listeners of Rebel HR, you can get a $20 Amazon gift card sent to you from Buzzsprout by clicking in the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Are you looking to grow your personal brand or your business brand? Take it from me that podcasts are a great way to do it. Here's the secret. We all want to feel connected to the brands that we buy from. What better way to humanize a brand than through sharing your personal story on a podcast? I have had great success with KitCaster. KitCaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. And let me tell you, it's all about the right human connection. You can expect a completely customized concierge service from their staff of communication experts. KitCaster is your secret weapon in podcasting for business. Your audience is waiting to hear from you. For a limited time offer, Listeners to the Rebel HR podcast can go to www.kitcaster.com backslash rebel to get a special offer for friends of the podcast. Rebel on. Yeah, that's a really interesting, interesting observation. And I think about those moments in my career personally where, you know, yeah, I was thrust into something, especially in HR. I'm sure our listeners are sitting here thinking they could probably name off top of their head. Yeah, those, those were five crazy moments that I wasn't prepared for. But each one of those, you know, for me, it was my first manager job. And it was a leader who left unexpectedly got promoted. And then there was a vacuum. And it's like, I wasn't qualified. And that's basically <laughs> what I said in the interview. I'm like, well, I'm not qualified, but I'm willing. Right. So yeah. like, give me a shot, you know? And they mm -hmm. were like, well, he's cheap. So, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it was, gosh, I learned more in one year than I learned in my entire, you know, collegiate career. And, right. and it was fun and crazy and screwed up and, but learned and then, you know, got better. And, and so, you know, I mean, for me, that was one of the hardest, but most fun aspects. So is that what you're referring to in your book? You know, you talk about, a, you know, kind of that learning mindset. Is that one of those commonalities that you saw as you were growing that organization, that that learning mindset was kind of the, the it factor, if you will? Well, I'll tell you what, what uh, was really a new experience for me at LinkedIn was building a new business, this whole platform recruiting, passive recruiting model that hadn't existed before. Uh, with a leadership team that no one had ever been in the recruiting business before. I probably hired more people than our leadership team combined, but it wasn't my business. You know, I'm a recruiter for somebody else. Building a new model forces you to look at the world a little bit differently. And I think that was a good forcing function for us 
to experiment and try people in new jobs because their jobs didn't exist that we were trying to do before, you know, and Mm -hmm. you know, how do we sell our product to companies who've never bought anything like this before? You know? So for example, we would start, and remember this was like my first week uh, at LinkedIn, this guy comes in, Brian Frank, he's now working at Cameo, which is an interesting company. And he comes in and he says, Steve, I want to tell, explain our business to you. And I was like, oh, thank you. This is great. Cause that's what I want. I want to know the business. He goes, okay. He draws a big pie a circle. And then he draws a thin line. He goes, everything except for that thin line, that's the most, the significant expense every company has. You know what that is? I go, no. He goes, that's payroll. He goes, 95% of the expense of every company is payroll. So we're going to go tell people, don't you want to be thoughtful around the choices you're making for 95% of the expenses <laughs> of your company? And I was like, okay, now I get it. You know, And it's sort of that. Plus, we had multiple people that by force of necessity, because we couldn't hire people, like we would have people who were brains, literally brain surgeons that were really good with data that wanted to help us solve the problem of helping people find their dream jobs. So they would, we would hire them as data scientists and they would just blow our minds with the kind of stuff that unfortunately are brain scientists. So when our minds are blown, they could help put it back together, but they, uh, they don't, don't, but they were really great. That joke. I like it. <laughs> they were really, you know, and then we would take people from, I remember one guy, this guy, Michael Nguyen was his name, he's a Vietnamese guy. And on the weekends he would, he had a doggy diner that he would drive around the Bay area with his family and they'd sell hot dogs and he'd make these relish. And he was an accountant. And he, all he wanted to do was talk about his doggy diner all the time. And so one day we hit a point where we needed to build a food program at the company. Like we're, we need to have a cafeteria and stuff. We're, we're big enough now. So we went to him and said, Hey, would you want to take over our food program? He's like, what? I'm an accountant. Yeah, Michael. But all you do is talk about your doggy diner all the time. You clearly love the stuff. Would you want to do that? And he's like, you would do that? I was like, yeah. So we put him over there. The guy starts crying. I start crying. His boss starts crying. And then guess what? He becomes the most and loudest advocate for us on social media around job change, career change, LinkedIn doing something really special. And you just, those stories helped us learn taking a chance on someone who's going to reveal some upsides and sort of moved my mindset of experience is more important than talent to definitely talent's more important than experience. Like that was a huge um, mind shift for me as we're building something new and you have to take risks because there's no one has got the experience that you need. You know, <laughs> it was super interesting. Yeah. I also violently agree with that perspective. And, you know, I think, you know, my industry is an interesting one because it's, it's so, it's so polar opposite to what you just described. It's, you know, manufacturing, it's build the process and then let the process run. And, you know, it's almost like the perspective is the people are secondary. And I think, it's a really interesting corollary to think about if you just look at like the cogs, we talk about accounting, but you right, know, the cost right. of goods sold. And for us, it is not people. It's it's the raw material that goes into producing the product. People is number two as it relates to expense. And so, you know, there's maybe a little bit of a shift there, mm-hmm. but I would tell you that one of the areas that our business con- considers its competitive edge is the fact that we're international. So I have a meeting tonight with Singapore and China. And I had a meeting this morning with Amsterdam and spend the middle of my day in the U S you know, and it's, uh, so it's a very, very dynamic organization, but the mindset is, can really struggle as it relates to change. And we really do kind of fight that battle between individuals who, well, 20 years ago 
we did it this way. You know, why would we change it? We're profitable. Why would we change it now? Mm -hmm. But one of the risks and I would say threats that COVID exacerbated for us is the fact that we did find that we have to be more nimble because if we're not, somebody else will be. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, that that is extremely critical as it relates to talent and technology integration. And so, you know, as we look at, you know, some of the futurists and AI and, you know, all these, all these software uh, claims that are going to take away, you know, the need mm -hmm. for people, you make a concerted effort to make sure that we need to be more focused on humans than ever before. And so how did you build kind of build that mindset into your work as you progress through your career and what, what led you to that, uh, to that theory? Yeah. Well, thank you for, for calling that out. And I, I hope that a lot of listeners can empathize with what you're saying, which is this notion that the future of work has been the worst marketing campaign in history, right? That, uh, <laughs> you know, that run for the hills, the, the robots are going to take your job. Right. And so I think it's probably a progressive awareness over time, honestly, Kyle, that, I very cynical when the consultants would come in and say, we're going to do a digital transformation. And I go, well, what does that mean? Oh, we're going to, you know, implement these new tools and systems. The company's going to be more, much more profitable, make more money, greater margins, lower the cogs, as you say, you know, it's going to be really great. And what really uh, got under my craw, having heard this in every organizations I've been in and every company I'm consulting with today is going through some form of digital transformation or another. I said, let me tell you what an employee hears when you come knock, knock. Who is it? It's HR consulting. We're going to go through a digital transformation. What they hear is my job's going away. Blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. I'm probably going to be let go. Blah, 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 blah. This is good for the company, but I don't think it's good for me. And for me, it kind of starts with the language. Think about those two words, digital transformation, for a second. Do those words to you conjure up notions of beautiful, human, loving, caring, lasting, you know, nature, bucolic settings? No, they conjure up notions of cold, heartless, steel, inhuman. And when I see most of these organizations talk about launching these digital transformations, they're not going to say, hey, Kyle, if I told you I could make your job more interesting, you could do it in a shorter period of time, you could make a bigger, bigger impact and have more fun, would you be interested? And you go, yeah. But that's not what we do. We say, hey, there's a new tool, a new system. Go to the training on Thursday. Learn how to do this. Your job's going to change a lot. And here's the handbook. Study up. Good luck. You know, and, and here's why it's good for the company, not why it's good for you. And I think we need a new language. I think we need to recognize that the future is about being more human. And, and yes, we need to leverage technical edge for us to be successful in the future. But the real advantage for us as individuals professionally is if we can double down on what it takes to be a human that technology cannot do, caring, leadership, compassion, empathy, understanding, and most importantly, communication. And I will tell you, and I know a lot of the other HR leaders can resonate with this, a lot of communication that I deal with uh, in the organizations I work today is nonverbal. You know, how does AI pick up nonverbal cues where the eyeballs go, you know, how, how someone's physically reacting to a certain setting. And that's just something that we have as humans that technology is never going to have. And that's a beautiful thing. So I'm not worried about the future. I'm worried about the fact that we're so inundated with new technology that most people think, oh, the way I'm going to get out of this is to buy new technology that buys me more time. 
so or my quick the seduction with using more technology and and you know I, I'm a parent I'm I'm fearful that my kids are going to lose the ability to have unstructured conversation because they're texting <laughs> and when I call them on the phone and they text me back what do you want I'm like you to pick up the phone that's what I want <laughs> so we could talk and I can you know sniff if you're up to something or not but truly I am optimistic and I do believe that if you double down hey learning new tools new systems super important and the biggest most important skill of the future is your capacity to learn quickly. That's going to differentiate companies and individuals the faster you can learn stuff. But it's being human that's going to really be the stickiness for, I believe, long-term career success and how you differentiate yourself from the ways that technology can help and you know supplement things we do at work. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I like that, you know, the rainbows and puppy dogs a lot more than the, you know, the Terminator, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, future. You know, it's really interesting. I do wonder kind of in the same context with, you know, the environment that we're shifting into, how are we going to use the technological tools to maintain the relationships that that we are used to cultivating in person, you know, is there, um, because I think, I think it can happen. I certainly won't pretend to know the best way to make that happen. And quite frankly, it's just easier to accidentally run into somebody in the hallway and then have a wonderful conversation than it is to, you know, have a very intentional zoom meeting (laughs) about the same context. So how do we inject humanity into this new workplace structure that in, inherently uh, reduces in-person contact? What a, what a great question. And I hope every organization is asking this because as the pandemic hit initially, my concern was, you know, I think as humans, we really uh, feed off of community. You know, we feed off of the human experience, the shared human experience. And there's a lot of research out there to suggest, you know, the, the people that end their lives with the highest level of feeling content are the people who've surrounded themselves with friends and, and colleagues and people that have good relationships with. And I think that what I think we need to try to embrace more, particularly in this remote work reality that we're still working our way through for most of America uh, and the world, is to be intentional around creating informal moments where we can connect. Creating those, whether it's an online game that, you know, uh, HR is playing finance this week and, you know, Clash of Clans and, you know, we're going to have an online game. We're going to have a chat box that's open or whether it's a one-on-one chess tournament, whether it's a coffee roulette where we're going to match two people in the organization that's never met before and they're going to have a virtual coffee or in-person coffee. Like, I think we need to use systems and tools to create informal collisions of people. Because I believe some of the best work I've ever done at work was when someone's guard is down. They're not expecting to have a formal meeting. Those of you who are parents, I want to ask you a question. When do you have the best conversations with your kid? When you say, can we have a talk? Or is it when you're (laughs) driving them to baseball practice or school and you're both looking forward, there's no agenda. And they say, I cuts her tomorrow and I'm a little bit nervous. I'm not going to make the team. And they say that. Just Lance. Now, we are losing some of those because of this you know, programmatized, I need to set up a meeting with you on Zoom or whatever reality. And I think we have to try to find ways of being intentional of creating those lighthearted human moments, right? Where we're just 
our yeah. guard is down. And that's kind of where we get to know. Like I worked on M&A for four years at Cisco. We did 50 deals. I'm telling you, I had tons of info sessions and one-on-ones, but the best stuff I ever had was I'm in the break room making a coffee and a, a, some guy approached me, hey, I didn't want to bring this up in the question and answer sessions, kind of personal, but my son's on chemo and your medical plans, he, he's, my doctor's not on that plan. Like what's going to happen? Mm-hmm. I was like, right. oh, thank right. you. Right. And that informal moment provided, or, you know, you leave a meeting and you're a little like that person, you know, Kyle was a little frosty towards me. What was that all about? I didn't want to put him on the spot, but I don't necessarily today have that moment to sort of say, hey, what was up with that? Like, did you get up the wrong side right. of the bed today? And that, you know, all the study says the best and highest performing teams have two main components, high degrees of trust and psychological safety. And I think we're at the early phases right now in this new world of work where we've, you know, heavy reliance on technology. So I don't know that I have the right combo, right? But I think it's going to take some experimentation from us and some intentional designing these in, informal opportunities for people. And I hope it can be better than uh, than it was before. Yeah, I think the the key word I really liked uh, that you, you focused on it was you know that intentionality, right? It's, it's somehow we have to replace it, and I I don't know. There's these you know kind of these raging debates online, and and there's all these headlines about the CEOs who are like everybody's coming back, and if you yeah. don't like working in the office, too bad, you know, then we just won't hire those people. And I think that. I guess my opinion is a little bit more middle of the road here. Mm -hmm. You know, my perspective is I think, I don't think this is a, this isn't a binary black or white, like the new world of work is this and the old world of work was that. I think what I'm hearing is people just want, they want to retain some of this. Some of this was good, not all of it, but there are some individuals who are like, you know what? I don't mind going back to the office here and there. But do I really need to sit in traffic five days a week and burn 10 hours of my week sitting in a commute? Mm-hmm. Probably not, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I just think that organizations that are focused more on kind of that flexibility are going to be better off that those are that are not. And I, I guess that's been my approach to it. Yeah, but I'll be honest, I don't have the answer. I Yeah, and um, and and Kyle, know. you know, you are that that's a beautiful thing that you just said that. I don't have all the answers and I think more organizations should say that. So, I have lost count of the organizations that have brought me in in the last 6 months and said, "Steve, tell us what is the, <laughs> yeah. what is the best practice? Is it uh fully uh, stay fully remote? Is it hybrid? Is it uh, go back to the office?" And I said, and I'm sort of going to recharacterize exactly what you said, because I think I'm on the same page as you, which is, I said, the best practice right now is experimentation. The best practice is pockets of your organization will be well served to be at home all the time. Some will be served to do some iteration of hybrid. And by the way, there's a million iterations of what hybrid looks like. What days, what hours, who's together, who's not, what days of the week, and how you want to work that. And so the best way to navigate this is to try some things out, learn experiment, adjust, get the feedback, tweak it, do something different until you find, you know, what thing's going to work. And just like, you know, we are organic species and we're always changing and organizations are always changing. That's why I'm like, how can you say your culture is always going to be the same? It's never the same because the people are always changing. So we have to evolve. And I think this moment of adaptability is going to hopefully serve us all well. Plus we've all had to get to know each other on a more personal level because we've all 
had personal circumstances drive our ability to focus or defocus us, whether we're worried about an elder person whose immunity is compromised or kids' educational challenges or schools' <laughs> uh, inability to adapt or schools who are adapting or what kind of Wi-Fi we have at home. I worked from home for eight years, but I was never the short order cook for my kids three meals a day while I'm on a webinar getting texts saying, hey, when are you going to be done with that stupid webinar so you can cook me some food? You know, <laughs> That was a little bit new. And so, um, and so we've all had to do that, but I do, I resonate with what you're saying. And there is, we don't know how it's going to play out. There's no MBA major in managing remotely from managing in person for decades, right? And we don't really know, but I think I have to believe some people have discovered they can create value better for themselves. They have more job satisfaction. There was a, an interesting study that just was published a couple of weeks ago that and Gallup measures engagement. What they did was they found that people, even people who are working from home, who've never worked in person, right? This whole growing new generation. I started with your company, but I've never met anyone face-to-face and I've never been in an office. Those people were more engaged than people who'd been working in the office who are working from home. So like, what are you engaged with? Because you've never been a part of it. I find that was just so fascinating from a philosophical perspective, right? That, and so I think what the study was saying was, I'm more in control of my work time and that is meaningful to me. Therefore, I'm more engaged, right? And it's the simple things like you said, I want to go get a haircut and I have to fight for a Saturday appointment. I want to do my grocery shop and get my nails done, whatever, not fighting on the weekends, you know, like, I, I don't want to give that up. You know, I don't want to give up not commuting and sitting in traffic. I mean, I will tell you, I did a two-year assignment in Asia and I went from a 30, 45-minute commute twice a day to a five-minute cab ride. And I hated the five-minute cab ride because a little bit of that commutes my detox, my time, no one's crying, mm-hmm. no kids are there, no spouse is going, hey, what do you know? And no boss is there. And I missed that little bit of you know, sort of either get ready for work or sort of think through what I'm going to do the next day at, at the office. And that was a real interesting experience. Like that five minute cab ride, it was too short for me. And I, w- I wanted my little locker room on wheels, you know, to go back to, but it, it forced me to sort of appreciate a different model. Right. Yeah. That's a really great observation. You know, and I think I'm just reflecting on the the comment that you made. And I think the other word that I really liked that you used was it's, you know, it's, it's more about community than community and connectedness, I think is what I, what I heard, um, or at least internalized from what you just said. And I Mm -hmm. think, you know, an, an interesting, this is anecdotal, but if I reflect back on my organization specifically, you know, I mentioned we're, we're international, we are more connected as a group, as a holistic organization than we would have ever hoped to have been back in 2019 because we had that catalyst Mm -hmm. and because we were forced to do that to deal with a global pandemic. And then, and now some of that stuff stuck, right? Mm -hmm. And even though we're not all in the same place, we are definitely on the same page and definitely much closer as a team and as a, a kind of a community of people dealing with kind of the same stuff. Yep. Um, even though we're in different parts of the world. And so I think uh, the other thing uh, that I think is really interesting is, and you mentioned you've been working from home for a while, is, you know, there are ways to do this. We just haven't had to do it on a broad scale until last year, right? And so so it's it's not a completely foreign practice, but it, it takes change. And, right. And it's not easy. 
Right, and every well, most organizations have a sales force that's always been working remotely. So you already have right. a group that's figured that out, right? We do have companies that have been founded from being remote till um, you know hitting scale. But I really like what you said, which is I'm going to use a, words that you didn't use, but to to try to bring context to what you just said. We just have had a shared experience that our generation really hasn't had before. Maybe in America, you could say 9/11 was a shared experience of right. you know rekindling patriotism rekindling we're on the same team i'd like to say that this pandemic is bringing us closer i don't know because we are a very fractured culture in this country politically uh, more than ever before and the george floyd you know challenges with differing points of view on racism and gender equality and so forth but i will say uh, and i was just having a conversation with some friends on this the other day that they're super excited they're they're talent leaders like you and i and what they're seeing the pandemic do is bridge generational differences in their organizations mm-hmm. that they hadn't seen before because of the shared experience of the pandemic and going through hard stuff. And that more seasoned people with gray hair like me were mentoring some of the younger talent on, hey, this is not something. I mean, yeah, it's hard, but we've been through hard stuff before and, and here's some ideas. you know. So like you say, I hope that we're going to come out the other end of this feeling more connected and having more resolve. And that's going to give us energy to, to build better, you know, rebuild better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I distinctly remember, you know, if anything else in the middle of the pandemic, at one point I was on a call, everybody had a beard. <laughs> <laughs> so they all had something tying them together. So we, we all have, we have something in common. Was that like hockey playoff beard or what was that? <laughs> yeah. 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 COVID. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah. COVID beard. Mm-hmm. All right. We're going to shift gears here. We're coming towards the end of our time and I want to make sure I'm really fascinated to get your responses to the rebel HR flash round. So okay. uh, three quick questions and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. So uh, question number one, what is your favorite people book? Favorite people book, probably there's a bunch of them, but I probably would say The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Ben Mm. is an entrepreneur. He's a venture capital investor. And his whole book is about the stories of people and challenges in growing a business. And it's just super relatable. So enjoy that one a lot. All right. Perfect. I have not read that. So that is definitely on my list. All right. Question number two, who should we be listening to? Who should you be listening to? Uh, Probably two people come to mind right now. Tim Ferriss, super interesting for me. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast and his audibles are off the charts. Uh, Good. If there's someone who gets me to think about something differently, it's him. Uh, And I really just enjoy it. Particularly, he wrote a book. It's not one of his current ones, but he wrote a book years ago called The Tipping Point. And the tipping point is about change. And if you think about any job in the world is changing something. And what better skill could you develop than a skill to be better at change? And that was just a big book for me. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Ton of great content. I mean, it's, yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Okay. Last question. Toughest one. How can our listeners connect with you? Uh, you can connect with me many ways. Please connect with me on LinkedIn. Find my posts on TikTok. I have hundreds of posts on TikTok and they're funny stories. I have a, a whole story, a series of stories called True Stories from Corporate America, which uh, <laughs> every HR person has. I know you all have them. I've tried to tell them in very politically correct ways, but it's just Steve Cadigan is my TikTok. And then my website, stevecadigan.com. And again, uh, super, super excited to be 
uh, what I call a recovering human resource professional talking about the future of work <laughs> with Workquake. And I think if you like any of the stuff we talked about, you're going like, uh, to like my book a lot. And I really hope you uh, pick up a copy and uh, one for all of the people that you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? You keep making comments about the gray hair, but I don't have TikTok. So, you know, you're ahead of me on that. <laughs> well, my wife loves it. She's, you know, it'd be late at night and, she, and suddenly I'll hear this blasting music in my ear and I'm like, she'll wake me up and she's watching, laughing at TikTok. Yeah. So. You know, your partner's watching TikTok when you hear the music like, oh no, oh no, no, no. There's a bunch of refrains <laughs> that they have. Well, something really amazing uh, happened this week. And I, I don't know if this is true, but there's a firm called App Annie that tracks web usage. And they said this week, TikTok viewers exceeded YouTube viewers. If you can believe that. Wow. So it's really, it's a force to be reckoned with. And I was shocked, Kyle, shocked how many people watch my stuff. I thought I'm not lip syncing. I'm not dancing. I'm giving serious, mostly serious stuff and some funny stories too, but they're true stories and people are eating it up. So it's pretty cool. It's fun. All right. I'll check it out. Sounds good. All right. But, uh, if I was first million on LinkedIn, Definitely not first million on, on TikTok, but uh, <laughs> I can work on that. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Just absolutely wonderful content. It's been wonderful connecting with you. And just for our listeners, again, the book is Work Quake, Embracing the Aftershocks of COVID-19 to Create a Better Model of Working. And we'll have links to all that in the show notes. And yeah, I just uh, appreciate you putting down all of your experience and thoughts into uh a place that we can access it. So thanks, thanks Kyle. Steve. Thanks for having me. And thank you for getting out the word, like, you know, the future work and helping people navigate the future. So more power to you guys. Thanks. Have a great one. You too. All right. That does it for the Rebel HR podcast. Big thank you to our guests. Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR guy, or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any of the organizations that we represent. No animals were harmed during the filming of this podcast. Baby.